Hello, Eileen. Welcome to LA. Welcome to the Quinn Show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. Um, can you just tell everyone who you are and just like, yeah, give us what's the up? The little, the, the down low. <laughs> yeah. Um, my name is Eileen Kelly. I am a sex educator and mental health advocate. I'm the founder of Killer and a Sweet Thing, which is like a sexual health website forum. Um, I run a podcast called Going Mental with Eileen Kelly. And I live in New York City. I'm from Seattle, Washington originally, and just kind of doing my media thing. So can you talk about like how you got into this whole deal? Because you were one of the first people really to break into the sex space as a young woman, and you're kind of the face of your company. Just kind of talk about your journey and, and how this all came to be. Yeah, I mean, it's a deeply personal one, and I think that's a really important part of just my mission and brand. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Seattle, like I said, in a house full of boys in a conservative Catholic family, and I actually lost my mom really when I was really young. So when I was eight years old, my mom passed away, and just going through, obviously, that traumatic experience and then growing up in a household where like emotions weren't really discussed and there was a lot of this sexual shame because of the Catholicism and I just felt very alone in my experience and when I went through puberty I really felt like I had no one to turn to about my body my sexual health and so then I started on tumblr and where all good things begin. <laughs> yeah, which I feel like is like not even a thing anymore. But yeah. when I was 16 years old, I would talk to other teens on Tumblr about my body and I would share kind of personal things that was going on in my life. Um, my high school relationship with my boyfriend at the time and losing my virginity and just connecting with people online felt very intimate because I didn't have that access to people in my day-to-day life, Mm. the internet became my safe space. And I ended up moving to New York to go to college. And I thought to myself, okay, I could turn this Tumblr idea, kind of an Ask Alice, into my career. And so that's what I did. I started Killer in a Sweet Thing, which first was just a sex education blog where I talked about getting an IUD put in and similar to what I was talking about on Tumblr. Yeah. And I realized very quickly that I was sharing such a narrow perspective. Like I was only sharing one perspective and I wanted anyone who came to the website to really relate to the content. So I started asking my friends who were in college at the time, Hey, would you want to write a piece about what it was like for you growing up or what kind of birth control you're on? And so that's kind of, it was just a super organic process. And at one point we had over a hundred writers, like it just spread and people wanted to write for us and share their stories. And it was honestly an amazing time in my life. So this was like three years ago. And during that period, I was also going and speaking at universities across the country and trying to not only have this website, but kind of spread my mission in a more tangible way outside of the internet. And we did books and we did events and all types of things. And I went through a period where I was really struggling with my mental health, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I decided to step away actually from work and I didn't work for like about a year and now I'm back. (laughs) And now you're back with, you know, an incredible podcast. I'm such a fan. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired going mental and, and what's your mission with it? Yeah. So... I think it's important to talk about, so during my year off, I actually entered psychiatric treatment and I went to McLean Hospital in Boston for a five month stay. And so when I got out of the hospital into COVID, obviously like the whole world had flipped on its head and I just felt like, okay, I could pick up exactly where I left off. I could continue with speaking at schools. I mean, I probably would do so over Zoom because of COVID (laughs) and I could continue with Killer in a Sweet Thing. But I just felt like it would be inauthentic to just ignore what I had just gone through. 
And so I took some time to really think about what are my next steps? What do I want out of my life? What really matters to me? And it was kind of this mental health journey that I feel like not a lot of people talk about. There is so much stigma around it. I mean, even when I went away, I didn't know who to turn to to get help and to go away. So that's where I got the idea for the podcast. And it's called Going Mental with Eileen Kelly. And it's really just about not only my experience in psychiatric care, but interviewing all types of people. I mean, I've had Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's personal attorney on my podcast. (laughs) I've had Amanda Knox on my podcast to really talk about no matter who you are, people face adversity and they have struggles. And I just wanted to sit down and really open up, kind of allow people to share their story because I really think everyone has a story to tell. So cool. Can you talk more about your personal story with mental health and kind of what happened? Yeah. So like I said, my career was honestly taking off and I had everything I'd ever dreamed of in terms of career. Like I had just signed with WME and I was touring, you know, going to speak at Columbia University and Brown University, like schools I probably couldn't even get into. (laughs) And I was speaking like I don't know, doing big endorsements with like Mac Cosmetics and Calvin Klein. And I was so unhappy. And that really speaks to social media at large is on the surface, I looked like I was doing so amazing. But on the inside, I just felt, to be quite blunt, I was like very suicidal, so anxious. Really right before I left, I was struggling with so much anxiety that I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping, um, and it was hard to function. It was hard to get up and go to work and do these things, and I just felt like I was on a hamster wheel and I couldn't get off. And I think it's important to note, like, I'm so thankful for everything that I had during that time and everything that I have still. And it wasn't that I wasn't grateful for those things, but my mental health was deteriorating and no career is worth that. Yeah. Like there were days where I didn't want to be here and like what career can you have if you're not going to be here tomorrow? So I had to, I had to prioritize my mental health essentially. And I'm very privileged to have been able to take time off from work that's not something everyone has access to but I knew it was like a life or death decision wow thank you so much for talking about it (laughs) it feels so good doesn't it to like talk about these things um frankly and honestly I guess um what have been your biggest sort of takeaways for mental in terms of your mental health what are some lessons that you learned that you feel like other people might benefit from from hearing um that you are the main character in your story. No, I'm serious. You're I the main that. character yeah. in your life. Like, you you can prioritize certain things. Obviously, access is a really big issue, and not everyone can afford to go to a treatment center for five months or um, even have maybe the level of therapy that I was allowed. But there are access. Sorry. <laughs> there, um, like, what's the best way to put this? But I feel like if you want it, you can get it. Does that make sense? Right. And, and just even, like, opening your mind to those options, right? Like, that it's okay to take time off or not go out one night, not be on social media. Sometimes it feels like all those things are, you know, like, we signed a contract to do those things and we didn't. Um 
Yeah, you can like take your life by the balls. Right. Honestly. <laughs> and if you need to and by like create boundaries. That's cojones. something I, I <laughs> no, true, but that's something I learned while I was in treatment. Like I'm allowed to have boundaries. There were days where I was like, yes. Oh shit, I have to show up to work and then I have to go to this event and then I, I need to see my friends because I can't right. let my friends feel like they're falling at the wayside. I have to be a good friend and now I've come out of there and I'm like, you know what? If I'm having a really bad day, I can communicate like, hey, I'm actually not going to be able to make it to that event or I'm not going to be able to hang out with you. It's not a personal thing, but I have to prioritize my well-being to get anything done, to be a good friend, to be a good sister or daughter. Do you feel like this issue around boundaries like affects women more than men? Like that women maybe are more likely to people please and, and bend over backwards to make everyone happy, whereas 100%. men are more comfortable with just setting boundaries. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's just like, unfortunately, a societal thing yeah. and a gendered thing and how we grow up. And I mean, think about even when you're like a little girl, what they tell little girls versus little boys, like oh, you're so pretty, you're right. so sweet. But to a boy, it's like, you're so strong. Like, even when you're mm-hmm. talking to a five-year-old, you're so strong, you're so courageous. Like, it's very different things that women are um, conditioned to f- to be proud of, to feel like their identity yeah. is It's is, not is main about, character. Yeah, it's, it's not main opposite. character. So yeah. when you get to a point where you're, like, trying to trying to protect or or build up or even identify what your main character is I think it's harder for women totally wow yeah that gives me like so many ideas and questions um can you talk about like social media and how that fits into everything because like what a mind fuck (laughs) what a mind fuck exactly I mean we have like two different lives happening at once even this past week Uh I We talked about this before we started recording, but I had a pigeon mite infestation. I'm sure you've never even heard of that. Pigeon (laughs) mite. But it's kind of like bed bugs, essentially. And I had to go stay at a hotel while my apartment was getting fumigated. But obviously, I didn't want to share that on social media. So it looks like I'm staying at like a fancy hotel, having a staycation, partying with my friends. But in reality, I was kicked out of my home. I'm covered in like a thousand bug bites, like really stressful on my mental health. But people only show like a one dimensional view of their life on social media. And I think when your career exists on social media too, it can be difficult to differentiate your and figure out your identity outside of it. And that's something I really struggled with before I went away to treatment. And I think that's something I want to say on this podcast is Social media didn't cause my mental health issues. I had mental health issues probably my whole life. I think a lot of them were genetic and we can get into more specifics. Mm -hmm. Do I think social media aggravated them? Absolutely. 110%. Wow. Just seeing other people having these perfect lives, feeling like I have to keep up with my own career and and my life, comparing myself to other girls. Um... Appearance wise, doesn't it? Like, I'll just find myself feeling miserable on social media, and it's so hard to get out of. And I think there's also this disconnect with older generations because they're like, okay, so then why don't you just turn your fucking phone off? (laughs) You know, you don't need that if this is affecting you so much. But there's layers to that. I make my money off of social media. And good things come of it, Yeah, good things come of it. I mean, I wouldn't have a career probably if there wasn't social media. I think it's democratized a lot of things. Now anyone with a phone kind of is able to upload something and hopefully get an opportunity that before it was much more related to, I don't know, opportunities were related to more... Education or what Education, class, systems, nepotism, et cetera, et cetera. So there's good sides to it and there's bad sides to it. And I think it's important to talk about both. So I had someone on the pod, um, Alyssa, and she mentioned that like how she deals with this problem is she'll go into social media like it's literally her email inbox or like analytics or something and just look at it like through a data mindset, you know, almost like, okay, views were down. Like, what does that mean? I have to do for my content next. And it's just like straight business. 
is that a good strategy or like how do you deal with it these days now that you've kind of worked on this? I mean, I think it really depends on what you want to offer or what you're doing on there. So like, yeah, I don't view my social media in that way. Mm -hmm. I have in the past and I, it felt actually more crazy making because I am a person and behind these videos and these photos, you know, it's not just analytics. Like I, yeah, I'm willing to share my life with you, but I think my whole career path and just me as a person is wanting to share a more authentic view of who I am with people and connect with other people about mental health, about how is social media affecting our psyches, sex and my body and yeah. feeling insecure. And and so that's how I view social media. Like this past week, I did share that experience of the pigeon mites with my followers and like hey, social media is fake. And that's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. But sometimes you need to check yourself. Yeah. And it's almost just saying that, like, okay, this is fake. Like, really internalizing that message can help so much. Just calling it what it is, realizing that you're a part of it, and that sometimes you enjoy it, you know, and that we're all complicated and just rolling with it, I think, is the best strategy I can think of. And I think, I don't know, for me Mm -hmm. and especially since getting out of treatment, sharing my story and trying to be more transparent is really important to me. Mm. So I talked about, hey, this is why I was offline for five months. I was in the hospital. Um, Hey, even this fucking bed bug experience, like I look like I'm staying in a nice hotel and I am, but I'm also covered in these bites and and having a really hard time. And so I think moving the needle in that direction is very what I'm trying to do online. And, yeah, that that to me feels more meaningful than becoming like a a content machine, which is what I felt like I was doing three years ago, two years ago. So what was it like emerging from that five months and going back online for the first time? Oh, God. Um, I mean, I didn't have a phone for five months. Like, I think that's an important part of this. That's huge. Yeah, Yeah, like, I walked into that treatment center, and I said, take my phone. And I gave it to them, and they were like, wow, you're the easiest patient we've ever had. And I was like, no, I don't want it. Like, this is. It's a pain machine. I can't. I can't deal with it anymore with the thousands of emails with the being pulled in every which way um I'm really struggling with dealing with this some people can fully handle it I couldn't um and so I was like take my phone I don't want it I don't want to have to keep up with my 50 100 friends and and all my followers and and deal with my breakup and seeing what my ex-boyfriend is liking and just like, you know, all of that stuff. Like, I just needed a break from life. I wanted to hit pause on my life. And that's what I did. So I was off my phone for five months. And obviously, I worked actually with my doctors probably the month before I discharged mm-hmm. on having a little bit of time with my phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like an addiction, So it's not like someone going into treatment and then they give you a bag of cocaine like (laughs) the day you get out. So I knew I was going to have this phone and free reign the day I got out. So how can I work with my doctors to get acclimated to it and not feel so overwhelmed the second I'm handed back my phone? Yeah, And it's not like, oh, okay, you're on your own now. Like, good luck. So we're talking about how your friends responded and your followers responded were you surprised, like, by anything, or were people generally supportive, confused? So supportive. Wow. So, yeah. so supportive, and I'm so grateful. And I think that's really a testament to the community that I've built and and being so honest and authentic that people actually feel they relate to you and connect to you and they care about you. Yeah. And I felt so supported and so loved and... It was it was a wonderful experience. I'm like hap- very happy that I was able to share my story. So where are you mentally today? Like how what are you working on these days? How are you feeling? Um, yeah. I <laughs> and mean, I want to hear about your boyfriend too. Yeah. <laughs> so I am I'm doing good. Obviously yeah. this past week has been really stressful and I think 
it's important, like, for myself when I came out of treatment, I'm like, yes, I spent five months working on my mental health, like, very (laughs) in a really extreme way, but it's not over. This is a journey I'm going to be on for the rest of my life. And there are good days and there are bad days. And I go through good periods of months where I'm feeling great. And then I go through periods where I'm having a really bad day or an episode or whatever. And that just speaks to mental health and more generally. And I think when I started to accept that about my life, I felt like this weight was lifted off of my shoulders. Right, like the pressure to always be good or healthy or healthy. perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this past week I've been having a rough week because of the, the situation. Knocked me the off kilter. <laughs> but other than that, I feel like a new person since I come out of came out wow. of there. Like it was the, one of the best experiences of my life. And I'm so, so thankful that I honestly gave myself that opportunity because I actually had to convince a lot of people to let me take that pause. Wow. When you mentioned, like, I worked really hard on my mental health, can you, like, talk about that? Because I I sometimes feel like with, like, mental health culture now, there's almost this idea that if I just say, like, I love myself, that all of a sudden I'll love myself, like, what does the work actually entail? And, and... I mean, I'm sure there are like special, you know, like CBT or, or yeah. whatever that you, DBT or whatever you did, but what, yeah, what does like that work look like actually? So I was in a dialectical behavioral therapeutic program at McLean Hospital and it was a residential program. So it's not like I was in girl interrupted <laughs> and like in a psych ward wearing, um, you know, in like a hospital gown for right. five months. That wasn't my reality. That's some people's reality. But I was in a residential program. We wore normal clothes. I lived in a house with other women who were struggling with their mental health. P- the ages ranged like 20 to people in their 50s. And people came from all different backgrounds. So there were women in my program who were moms and were taking time away from their kids and their families to pull themselves together. And there are people who were had just gone away to college and then these kind of things started hitting them, depression and anxiety. So they decided to come. So people from really all walks of life and all backgrounds. And I entered struggling with what we've talked about. And it was important for me to be off my phone and then figure out why I was struggling. So that's kind of what the program's about. Mm. So you're in class, actually. Like, you wake up in the morning, you go and you eat your breakfast, and then you have four classes a day. And and some of those, like, classes are group therapy. So psychoeducation is a big part. What is anxiety? What is depression? What's happening in my brain? And because McLean is part of Harvard University or Harvard Medical School, Mm -hmm. they are, like, top dogs of, like, research. So they have a lot of that research of, like, this is brain disorders. This is chemical sometimes. And... That was really helpful because how can you get better if you don't know what's going on with you? Totally. That makes so much sense. So that was a lot of it is kind of learning what's going on, having the language, knowledge is power. And then the other parts of it was group therapy. So we literally learned how to establish boundaries, how to talk to one another, how when you're having a panic attack, what skills are there to use that's not going and taking a pill or doing destruct destructive behavior sorry um so like in dbt there's this thing called tip skills and if you're having a panic attack it's like temperature paired muscle relaxation is one of the p's um paced breathing and these are like real tangible um skills to use in the time of crisis that actually slow your heart rate down. So if you're having a panic attack and you can't breathe, you stick your face in ice water is one of the skills. Like it sounds crazy, but like we would practice this. And so that's what like you're really learning how to go back out in the world and then deal with this, with the things 
with your mental health yourself. Like get to a place where I can help myself now if I have a panic attack. Before, I didn't know what was going on with me. You know, I felt like, holy shit, I'm having a heart attack right now. I need to go to the hospital. I And now I know exactly, no, this is a chemical thing or this is what's happening with my cortisol. This is why I can't breathe. And I can use the skill of paced breathing. So I breathe in a certain way and it slows my heart rate down. So I calm down. Do you ever feel like these are things that every single person hundred percent. I mean, one, I think every single person should be in therapy. I don't think it's right. just for people who are really struggling. Because I'm like listening to you. I'm like, I want to under, I want to understand these things, you know, like, and, and I, I'm in therapy, but I feel like sometimes, and I love my therapist, she's wonderful, but I feel like sometimes we'll like start something and then we'll kind of, I won't do my homework because I'm stupid. And then like, we'll get back to it the next week and we kind of go over the same things. And I don't know, there's something really special about having that concentrated time to go to school on this and oh, figure no, out what's like going on. I feel like I got on. a PhD yeah. and like, ther- no, I'm literally feel like I came out of their therapist. I joke <laughs> with my therapist all the time. So, and so basically you're in class, like I said, uh-huh. for for a couple hours and then you have a study hall because we do homework like you're really learning this stuff so it's not like I had a quiz on like what anxiety is (laughs) but you do homework and during the afternoon during that study hall you go to a different appointments so you see a therapist twice a week your primary therapist Mm -hmm. you see a psychiatrist once a week because some women in there are you know going on meds coming off meds and you're that's really important to be on if you're on them to make sure they're working for you. And that can be kind of a struggle. And so you're also in a contained environment where they can really help you figure out the best plan. Amazing. Meds wise. um, Let's see. You do family therapy is mandatory. So you do family therapy once a week with a separate family therapist. Does your family come in for that? Um, no, my dad lives in Seattle, so we did Zoom calls. People are coming all over the world for this program. If they live in Boston and are able, they're more than welcome to come in person. My dad came and visited me one time and came to an in-person appointment. That was one of my favorite parts of the whole program. And one of the, like, I feel like I got the most out of that part of the program. I come from a family where, like, therapy is kind of taboo and mental health and it's not really understood and to have a third person mediate and really explain what I was going through to my dad so that he could support me um, was really special and not like dumb it down but essentially explain like this is what Eileen was struggling with before and maybe she didn't feel comfortable telling you and so this is how you guys can be closer as a family yeah sometimes you really just do need that third party right it's Mm -hmm. really important and then you also meet once a week with a harvard medical school researcher so they're working on their phd Mm -hmm. and that's where you do they really tailor that session to specifically what you need help with so for me in that session I worked on exposure therapy because I have obsessive compulsive kind of tendencies and body dysmorphic disorder and so I worked with a Harvard researcher and like really kind of like medical stuff so if you know if you're really afraid of spiders it's like a good example Mm -hmm. then in that session you would look at photos of spiders And they're slowly getting you acclimated to show you that the thing you're most scared of isn't actually going to kill you. Mm. Because our brains or people who struggle with that are, you know, it's like so fear-based. This thing is going to kill me. You know, germs are going to kill me. If I touch that doorknob, I feel like I'm going to die. I mean, I feel like that's the, those types of OCD are kind of the most well-known, but OCD can really span like the gamut. Wow. It's so interesting, right? That like people, they're, I feel like people aren't that dismissive of therapy these days, but there is this conception that it's like talking about your feelings. Mm-hmm. But hearing you talk about it, it's really like it's science. Yeah. It's all these tangible tools that you're learning. 
Um, well, that's why I like DBT, CBT. Mm-hmm. I've done more like traditional talk therapy in the past, mm-hmm. and it didn't work for me. It actually felt like it was quite harmful for me because yeah. I would, and this is specific to what I struggle right. with, mm-hmm. but I was doing talk therapy and I felt just like, okay, I'm talking about my feelings and why I, I'm saying I feel so horrible and I feel suicidal, but I'm not being given the tools to how to deal with it. Right. If that and makes I sense. I have this image of a therapist just being like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So tell me more. <laughs> right. You're like, but. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. that didn't work for me. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so I started a group therapy program that was DBT before I went away um, when I was really like in the height of my mental stuff. And that was kind of like this program, but like a much more diluted version. You're going in for an hour, four days a week. And I just knew I needed a higher level of care. So I had to convince actually the doctors at that program to let me go to McLean because you can't just enter that program. You have to like fill out so much paperwork and you have to make sure you're struggling enough. Like they only have a certain number of spots. And yeah, I had to do interviews. I had to be, I don't know. It was a whole thing and I did it on my own. Wow. (laughs) To be honest, like, literally, I had to convince my dad and my therapist at the time, like, I, I need this level of care. And they were like, you don't seem like you're struggling that much. I mean, they didn't mean it in a bad way. But it's like, are you sure you want to go away for like minimum, you have to stay for two months? Like, are you sure you're ready to give up your phone? Are you sure you're ready to give up your career and put pause on it? And, I mean, they said that out of love for me. Mm-hmm. I think also there was just such a misconception. They they couldn't really understand what I was struggling with. Right. And, yeah, I think that also kind of ties into the social media thing where you see someone peak of their career, beautiful, and they're like, I am really not okay. And it's hard to make that work yes. in your mind. And that's why I don't think it's their fault at all. Mm. Like, I don't fault them or I'm not angry with them. I'm just glad I could step up and be like, I need this. I'm going to go. And, yeah, I mean, it was really difficult. I know I explain it like it was an amazing experience. It was. But there were a lot of nights where I was there and I felt horrible and I missed my family and I missed my cat. And I worried about, am I going to be able to pick my career back up after this? And there was a lot of self-doubt. Wow. Thank you so much for talking about it. I I remember there was this website a really long time ago called, like, It it Gets Better or something. I'm and the, not familiar. It, it's, it was just, like, celebrities talking about how, like, they once <laughs> were, like, in a terrible mental health place, and now it's better. And it almost that's kind of what so many people need to hear, in a way. It's just, like, you know, you're sitting here, you're like, I felt absolutely horrible. I made a choice, I did the work, and it actually, in reality, does get better. You know, it doesn't get perfect, it's not smiles, but, like, that's so cool, you know, that, like, life happens that way. Yeah, and And, I think think that's why I feel comfortable talking about it, Mm. because, I don't know, if if even just one person listening to this podcast can, who's struggling, and, and they listen, and they're like, oh, shit, like, Maybe I should just see a therapist or maybe I should read about DBT online and maybe there are tools for me to feel better, then that's worth it for me. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Could we touch on um, body image and that whole subject? Because it's something I feel very interested in, passionate about, whatever, and I know you feel the same. Can you just speak to your relationship to your body, how it's morphed over the years And what you've learned about this whole issue. (laughs) Yeah, so I was diagnosed actually with body dysmorphic disorder, which is a mental illness. And it's correlated with obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. And it's where you um, focus on a perceived flaw in appearance. Mm -hmm. And this could be like a real flaw. It could be an imagined flaw. And you are trying to constantly fix it. 
And Could you give like an exa- like a thigh gap or like arm yeah a thigh and, gap so that so then it feeds into like an eating disorder mm-hmm. so you know you keep trying to get that thigh gap or like I hate my nose for. Like, that could be an example. Mm-hmm. And so then you're getting a nose job, but you get the mm-hmm. nose job, and that doesn't fix the feeling inside because it's obsessed, an OCD thing. I it's see. a disorder. Mm-hmm. So then you're like, no, I need to get another nose job. I need another nose job. It's not quite perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's hard to explain. No, that makes total sense, yeah. But I think there's so much stigma and misinformation about body dysmorphic disorder, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of shame around it, so people hide hide it if that makes sense because they don't want to appear vapid right so it's like oh I wanted a nose job because but it's actually like driving me crazy and I'm not sleeping at night and it makes me feel horrible and I want to kill myself it's where someone maybe hearing that they want the nose job is like oh you you're vapid, like you right. just care about your appearance, but it's it's a men- it's like actually a mental <laughs> illness, um, yeah. and yeah, I struggled for years, and I think specifically social media. That's one of the things it really aggravated for me um, was the comparison and and face tuning and all the stuff and feeling like a catfish or what if I'm worrying about what if I don't actually look like what I looked like on what I look like online in person mm. and your brain just goes on a loop but then every time you, you try to do something about it it becomes like an unhealthy pattern so mm. an example is like maybe years ago I was going through a breakup and I started working out, but it became really obsessive and very unhealthy as a way to deal and cope with the anxiety I was feeling about the breakup. Mm. But it was very focused on my appearance. Like Mm -hmm. maybe he left me because I wasn't pretty enough. He left me or we broke up because I'm not skinny enough Mm -hmm. when rationally I know that's not true Mm -hmm. but my brain's telling me that so then I'm working out Mm -hmm. all day I'm not eating and it becomes this really unhealthy cycle and it's still not enough that's the big thing with OCD it's not enough so like for someone who's afraid of germs you know they wash their hands because they're afraid of germs but it's not enough that actually reignites the anxiety, mm. and so then you have to wash your hands again because mm-hmm. it didn't relieve the feeling of anxiety. It relieved it for a second, but now mm. it's back. And so that's, that's how people – That's the compulsive I part see. of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'm like, hope – I'm not a doctor, so like I'm <laughs> trying to explain it more from like my personal right. experience, mm-hmm. but that – yeah, I th- I'm hoping I explain it well, but no, I, I, that resonated with, a lot with me. And I think your point about the the feeling like, oh, this makes me vapid, is a big blocker for a lot of women. Like, there's sort of this meme of like the hurting woman. I talked about this on the podcast, like sad girl, girl who's obsessed with food, or girl who like can't feel happy in her body. And it's like, no one wants to be that like vapid or dramatic girl, but. In reality, it's not at all like that. It's a very serious, real pain that is sometimes like very kind of small or day to day, and it kind of like wears on you until it's it's really, really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just been like the experience of so many women I know. They're just like, it's not that big a deal. I don't want to be dramatic, and it's like it's a big deal because this is now years of your life, you know. Oh, completely. I yeah. mean, I met people who struggled with like, ext- I mean extreme body dysmorphic disorder and it's like they're not leaving the house because they don't like the way they look or they won't allow they won't take photos you know and they can't even enjoy their day-to-day life because of this thing but they don't want to tell other I mean that's what I was stuck in like I didn't want to tell other people because I didn't want to be judged like oh you're a pretty girl like why do you care like Mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever it is, but yeah, there's just so much stigma, so much shame and so much miseducation or no education. Like I had no idea what body dysmorphic disorder was until I was in that, um, group program and I got diagnosed. Wow. I was reading and I mentioned this also on the podcast that 80% of women in America have disordered eating or disordered relationship to food and body. And I think that is so 
mind-blowing that we have this like conception in society that only like women who look sickly have issues with food and body and it's almost everyone who is really struggling with this and it's it's perpetuated by our media and it becomes a cycle I actually posted something about the Kardashians I don't know if you saw that yeah I talk about that (laughs) two days ago but no shade um, we love Kylie (laughs) um no no shade at all and it wasn't it wasn't too she had actually posted a video mm-hmm. on YouTube um, kind of talking about how she started her cosmetics line, which is doing amazing. I actually use some of the products. But I love the packaging. Just like the packaging <laughs> is ace in my opinion. Okay, you go. <laughs> but that she felt insecure about her lips, you know? So yeah. she got lip injections, and that made her feel better. And to me, I felt like that was really harmful because it's quite obvious that she hasn't only gotten her lips done, you know, but also to turn that into, I mean, it's just like the capitalist structure and issue, but to say like getting the lip injections made me feel better and that's why I started a lipstick brand where I'm making billions of dollars from lipstick when and I don't blame her personally. I blame society at, at large mm-hmm. to be like, yeah, you have small lips. You're still beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. why do you have to change that about yourself? Does that make sense? To- yeah, totally. And I, I think even just starting that conversation, hearing different viewpoints on it, right, that's what's important because, like, the Kardashians weigh so heavily on our consciousness but we don't well, really so ta- influential. Yeah, and we I don't f- talk about it enough. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, oh, just to even have that honest conversation. But to go, my issue was in the video, she'd said I'd only gotten lip injections. I actually got them dissolved. And I was like, that's not true. <laughs> and teach their own. If right. you want to share what you get done, that's your personal choice. I'm not shaming her. And if you want to get something done, like more power to you. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is that I think there needs to be more transparency because people look at her photos, look at my photos too, mm-hmm. and think think that's real life when it's not. Yeah. They think that that's not edited. And so they're like, oh, I'm 21 years old. Why don't I have that those hips and that ass and that... And look look like that. And then also it affects people's, not only their relationship with their bodies, but I think it's actually affecting a lot of men because they, and porn and all this stuff, which we can get into, yeah. they're not even getting turned on by real bodies anymore. No, I'm serious. It's so bad. I, I know. I you know? know? Yeah. And like, I feel that way sometimes myself, like specific type of porn that I watch or erotica, like... There is a specific type of body type that I've been conditioned to find more attractive, mm-hmm. even with myself. Yeah. And so it's like a whole thing. I don't think it's the Kardashians' fault. I think it's media in general and just like perpetuating these unrealistic beauty standards. Yeah, totally. And I, I almost feel like like part of me has this hot take that's like I find plastic surgery a little bit empowering because it's like at least instead of, you know – hating your body every day and this kind of like micro torture we put ourselves under you could just like get lipo or like get a boob job whatever like I'm kind of like it seems like a way we can deal with this like sack of meat that we're walking around in in a kind of productive way instead of constantly but I I know know, but I just wished from from a young age like and this brings back to like what women and young girls are told like Mm -hmm. you're you're good the way you are yeah you know and like if every celebrity felt more comfortable in their skin and like they didn't like I'm sorry literally every (laughs) for the most part like majority of big famous a-list actresses have nose jobs I don't know you can look at accounts like celeb face for example like a lot of people have surgery and they're not transparent about it which is their choice but then it does influence people and I think it it um really exasperates women and girls issues because they're like I don't look like that like does that make sense completely yeah that makes so much sense where it's like and yeah I think a first step would be like utter transparency about the plastic surgery then at least we could know like or that people could get fucking booked in a movie if they have like a big nose and maybe they don't look like the perfect little like yeah Hollywood starlet, you know? So it's like, 
it comes from the top yeah. is like the issue. It's a societal issue. Yeah, and I was talking to someone about this, and she was like, my body is literally the least interesting part of my life. Like, I wish I didn't have to deal with it so often. And I think a lot of women relate to that, where they're like, like, I want to take all this time I have spent thinking about my ass and put it towards, like, writing a fucking novel or literally anything else, you know? Yeah. And it's like, think about the power we could unleash as a society to do cool shit if women weren't constantly told that all that all that matters about them is their appearance yeah i mean jen seltzer 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 is that girl who got really famous for having a big butt she's like a fitness guru okay um she's like kind of og instagram (laughs) but like her whole account is like this her butt (laughs) and no i'm serious But, like, even myself, and I think that's something I struggled with before I went to away, is, like, I used to post so many sexy photos, Mm -hmm. and I still do, under the guise of, like, body positivity. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it really felt that way, but sometimes it also felt like, okay, I'm getting external validation, or people are only interested in me when I take my clothes off. And that felt really difficult for me to harness about my, like, identity, if that makes sense. Well, I, th- I was uh, thinking about the idea of, like, the thirst trap and what we, like, use it as on social media. And, like, I fucking love posting, like, kind of just, like, annoying selfies when I look good. And it <laughs> but it's become, like, unhealthy, I think. Because it's, like, I use it for just, like, when I need, a like, a dopamine boost or yeah. whatever. And which is so fair. Yeah, which is fair. <laughs> and But then I'm, like, on Instagram and I'm, like, literally all these photos are of hot women. Like... Like, do you know what I'm saying? It's sort of weird to open an app and realize for a second that I'm just literally consuming pretty hot women 24-7. And that's, like, in my brain. Does that make sense? It's, like, it's all that is. But I think that's (laughs) why it's important. Something I have chosen to do since getting out of treatment is, like, Mm. I mute a lot of people. And I'm following, like, I follow, like, a hundred accounts about cats like cat like cute cats I love cats and so I'm like breaking up my feed and yeah. that's like a tool like an option to people like you can you don't just have to follow like the perfect insta girls you know and I think it's harder to do maybe in LA and working here like it it's just a part of the culture yeah but Yeah, once again, just, like, you're in charge of your destiny, kind of what we talked about before. Like, if you don't like it, then we each need to work to kind of change it. Yeah. I really like, like, that that's kind of the, like, the message, right? It's that it's not, we're not just, like, powerless to the algorithm. We're not just, like, these little, like, blobs. Like, we have brains. We can do things. We can get help. We can change our feeds. Like, there's something to to hope for here. No, 100%. You have more autonomy. That's all, that's, like, my whole gist is, Mm -hmm. like, take control of your life. And, yeah, you, it's your fucking life. You have one life. You have one life on this planet. So sometimes, yeah, things are out of your control completely. Mm-hmm. Like people come from different privileges and all this stuff. But here today, like you can make a choice even just within this hour. Like, I don't know. Yeah. How does that apply to sex and the work you've done with sex? Because I feel like there's a lot of overlap there. You know, like yeah. um, people say, you know, if you can't make yourself orgasm, and I say this, <laughs> not people, if you can't make yourself orgasm, how can you expect, expect a partner, a one night stand to do it, right? So 100%. I mean, yeah. Yeah, just you have autonomy over that, too. And do I think that's a societal issue and, like, the sex ed in this country is fucking fucked? Yes. But once again, like, take— Can you get back out there, please? (laughs) No, but once again, take it upon yourself because, like, you can't leave it up to your public school or your school to teach you about sex. You can't leave it up to most parents to actually have that conversation with you. So, I mean, that's what I did. I scoured the Internet for information, and I was like, yeah, I want to know everything about my body Mm. so I can tell a partner how to make me feel good. And also, so I know how to say no and, like, have a boundary and establish, like, if you don't feel comfortable in your skin— how are you going to get in the bedroom with someone or be out at a club and, and tell someone, like, no, I don't want this? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of women don't feel like they have a voice or that autonomy, and so they shut down, and you know what I mean? Yeah. 
God, saying no is, it's still really hard for me. Like, just finding the words to say it in a chill, cool, calm, kind way. I you think don't have to even say it in a cool, calm way. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, yeah. if someone's bothering you or, like, hitting on you at the bar, like, mm-hmm. just be like, dude, leave me the fuck alone. Or someone yeah. cat calls you, like, all the time in New York City, I swear I'm just walking around and someone will, like, especially in, like, the Lower East Side or something, say some comment and I usually just roll my eyes and I'm like seriously like just keep walking like when I was younger I felt like I had to be polite like oh thank you but I'm like (laughs) no I'm serious I felt like I was conditioned to like always be polite and be Mm -hmm. sweet and like oh like um my like I have to go find my friend or like okay I guess I'll give you my number but like now I'm just like no (laughs) I this is my life and I don't want to give you my number and you're gonna have to fucking deal with that yeah. I just love that as just like a mindset shift that like of being the main character, making the decisions, deciding your boundaries. And how do you balance that with femininity, which is something I struggle with? I want to like I enjoy, you know, like being cute and pretty and like being taken care of. And I like being submissive. But also at the same time, I want to have boundaries and I want to be strong, and I want to be, you know, a boss bitch. <laughs> yeah, no, completely. I mean, I think you can have both. Mm-hmm. And just being comfortable with yourself and realizing that you can. I mean, so many times in my career, I have faced things where I'm like, I'm in a, in a meeting, mm-hmm. or, and I feel like I'm not getting taken seriously, or someone's talking over me, and I'm like, if I was a man right now, this wouldn't be happening. Or I've been called a bitch, or uh, un stable by an ex-boyfriend or something Mm -hmm. and I'm like but if I was a man they I would be called like yeah a boss and Mm -hmm. oh wow he made that happen he's smart and he's I don't know like on top of their shit but women just really I feel like get the short end of the stick and do I do I think it's moving the needle and Mm -hmm. starting to move in the right direction yes but it takes women like not taking any fucking bullshit yeah, I honestly, like, I think I'm walking away from this with, like, a kind of renewed perspective because <laughs> I typically am like, ugh, everything sucks. Like, you know, um, we're get, we get such a short end of a stick, but I do feel like there's so much we can do. Like, so many things. Yeah, go out and, like, be the successful bitch that you are supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious because I don't know what the percentage is. Like, maybe I could look it up right now, but... Mm-hmm men who ask for raises, for example, mm-hmm. um, it's like 80% of men, like more than women, just even ask for that and then are given it. Like women don't step up and, and ask for those things. Do yeah. I think it's their fault or they were conditioned that way? I think they were conditioned. <laughs> but I'm like, take back your narrative. Like this is yes. your life. You you deserve what you, like, what you want. What you want, yeah. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Okay. Amazing. Did we touch on everything? I mean, I feel like that's a pretty good ending. Where can people find you if they want more of this, this, uh, energy, energy, energy energy and life advice. I'm just kidding. Okay. So my Instagram handles at Eileen, which is just my first name. So E I L legendary. Um, my sex ed kind of thing is killer and a sweet thing on Instagram. You can find me in the podcast app called Going Mental with Eileen Kelly. And yeah. Thank Eileen, you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and I'm excited to, to see this episode and hear it. Yeah. So. Thank you.